guys have your Bibles, open up to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. We've been going through the book of Daniel and um, going to continue that. We took a little bit of time off for Mother's Day to honor our moms. And so today we jump right back into Daniel. And so just to kind of catch us up to where we're at and what's been going on, Daniel chapter 1, you have a young Daniel, like 12, 13, 14, like a young Daniel. Um, the Judah's been captured by Babylon. And part of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king's plan, was to take the youth, like the finest, the best, the best, the cream of the crop, to take those um, young males back to the, the capital of the Babylonian Empire and then um, indoctrinate them and, and school them and, and bring them in and uh, train them to become part of his administration. And so that's what they do. Daniel comes. Um, he's young. He's taken away from mom and dad away from brothers and sisters, away from a lot of his friends, and he um, ends up there and he begins to go through this training process. Uh, three years this would go through. And, and, and in that, he gets a new name. Um, he, he goes from having a name, a Hebrew name that um, brought honor to God to giving uh, this Hebrew name that represented um, this, this God that Babylon, the Babylonians, worshipped. Um, he's given a new education. He's, he's taught a new language. And he's okay with all these things until it gets to this diet, this brand new diet. And this is where I think we see a word of caution for those of us who diet. Right, Mike? This is a word of caution. Don't go on a diet. No. What we see here is, is there's this, this, the king was going to give all of his students like a portion of a king's meal. So this was like the best of the best. This is the the absolute best food. As I said when we talked about this, we're talking like filet mignon and lobster tails. Okay, the good stuff. And Daniel had a problem with that. Um, there's probably two reasons why that occurred. One, it went against his um, religious beliefs. The type of food, the style of food wasn't probably considered kosher according to the law of Moses that he was allowed to eat was the first part of it. And the second part was this, that typically what would happen is before this food was brought to the king, it would be offered to their gods, to their idols. And then after it was offered to their gods and their idols, then it would be brought to the king. And Daniel just had an issue. That was when he, he drew the line in the sand. That's where we get Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, one of, I believe, the key verse to the life of Daniel, on the book of Daniel. It says that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile God. Like, he made a statement. He took a stand right then and there. Enough's enough. I'm done. I'm stopping this. I'm serving God and no one else, no matter what happens. So he would not eat. And so he goes, and we see all throughout the, the book of Daniel. Really, we see it all through the Bible, but especially in the book of Daniel, we see the sovereignty of God or how God is always in control. Even when it doesn't look like it, he is in control. And so God had kind of knit the heart of Daniel and the chief eunuch, the one who was in charge of this education, the one that was in charge of these new recruits. And he goes, Daniel goes to this chief eunuch, and he just expresses his heart. He doesn't go in an arrogant way. He doesn't go in a demanding way. He just goes to him and says, can I try this? Can I, can I have this other diet? Let me just drink water and eat vegetables. An exciting diet. Let me just do that. And again, for us to understand this, like, this is, like, not only is Daniel putting his neck on the line, the chief unit puts his neck on the line. 
And so for 10 days, he, he allows Daniel and his buddies to do this diet. And at the end of these 10 days, he goes back before Ashpenaz, who's the chief eunuch. And, and Ashpenaz finds that these guys are so much better prepared, healthier than the rest of the class. And so he allows Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for the remainder of those three years to go on this, remain this diet. And at the end, those, all those recruits, the whole recruiting class, stands before King Nebuchadnezzar, the king himself. And the king himself inspects and compares all of this class. And he finds those four young Hebrew boys to surpass all of them tenfold. I mean, not even just the recruits, but they're found to be even better than his his own advisors, his own wise men. And so at the end, so, so when we look at chapter 1, it, it, it starts low and it builds itself way up. And we, we're like, wow, wow, this is awesome, great. And then chapter 2 begins with Nebuchadnezzar having this dream. He, and it's causing him to lose sleep and he's anxious. And so he calls all of his advisors in and he wants to know what this dream is and what it means. It's a test. He's testing his wise men. He had only been king for a few short years. He had inherited all of his dad's advisors. And so it was his chance now to see, okay, if these guys really knew what they were talking about. And so he brings his advisors in and he he tells them, guys, tell me what I dreamt and what it means. If you are really what you say you are, if you have all this ability that you say that you have, you'll be able to tell me what what my dream was and what it means. The guys try to smooth talk him. They talk about how great and how mighty of a king he is. And he, after all the flattery, he goes back and says, guys, tell me what it means. Tell me what it is and what it means, or else I'm going to cut you all to pieces. I'm going to take your homes. I'm going to turn them into garbage dumps. They say to the king, There's, you're asking something impossible. You're asking us to do something that no other king would ask anyone to do. King stands firm, and Nebuchadnezzar stands firm. Tell me what it is. And they said, we can't do it. So he sends the order off. He, said, he goes to Arach, his, his chief guard, his, his head executioner, and he tells him, all the wise men and all the empire are to be killed. Now you have Arach approach the door of Daniel, telling him the good news that, hey, um, congratulations. You're about to be without a head and a home. Not good news for a young graduate. Daniel goes to Arach and asks what the rush is and just says, listen, can you give me some time to pray? And then I I will tell King Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was and what it meant. And so again, just like with Ashpenaz, just this kindred spirit, this relationship that God had allowed to transpire, he had the same here with this chief guard. And I, I believe this, that this chief guard, like he saw Daniel, he saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he saw these guys were, were men of character. Like they stood up for what they believed, but, but they did it in the right manner, in the right way. And so he put his neck on the line as well. And Daniel runs back, gets to the boys, they have this little prayer meeting, and God tells Daniel what the dream was and what it meant. And he goes back, tells Nebuchadnezzar what this dream was, and it's this, this dream of this giant statue. And it had these different various metals. The head was made out of gold, and then it went down to silver, um, and then, then um, bronze, and then ore, iron ore. And the mixture, the bottom part was a mixture of clay and ore. And Daniel tells this news to King Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, listen, king, like, this, this dream, 
that, that golden head, it represents you. Like the Babylonian Empire, like you are the greatest king, the greatest empire in human history. And what's so amazing, we mentioned this, starting in Daniel chapter 2, going through Daniel chapter 7, the, the language in which the book is written changes. It goes from Hebrew to Aramaic, and Aramaic was the Gentile main language. And what we see is this, this portion of Scripture is different than the rest of the Bible because everything prior to this, the book of Daniel and everything after the book of Daniel, when we look at history, we look at it through the lens of the Israelites, through the Jews. But this portion of Scripture, it's the history of the Gentiles. And what's amazing about this dream is it started with the Babylonian Empire in 605 B.C., and it is still going today. We talked about how, during that week, how each one of those sections represented a different empire, the first being Babylon, and then the Persians, and the Greeks, the Romans. And Daniel's promoted after telling the king what it meant and what, it, what the dream was and what it meant. And all of his, his friends were promoted too. And so it ends, again, like two, like chapter one, it starts low and it ends high. And then we get to Daniel chapter three. A famous chapter with, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the king has this, this gigantic statue that's built. About 90 feet tall, made out of solid gold. And although the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what the statue was, most commentators believe that it was this same basic shape of that statue that Nebuchadnezzar dreamt about. It was a little bit different. Instead of making the, the, the statue true to the dream with the different types of metals, it was all gold. We begin to see this arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar, this pride of Nebuchadnezzar festering. And he, these wise men, once again, get in the ear of King Nebuchadnezzar. The same guys probably who, who, who had failed him in chapter 2 had somehow regained their foot in the doorstep. And they begin to puff up the king and tell him that everyone should bow to this great idol that you built, and if they don't, they should be killed. Nebuchadnezzar thinks it's a great idea. So he does that. As soon as the horns blow, as soon as the music begins to play, they're all, every knee is supposed to bow to this idol. And everyone does except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel's three friends. And word gets back to Nebuchadnezzar. And you have to understand, at this time, Nebuchadnezzar had called all the people. And there were thousands upon thousands of people there. And everyone bows except for three young boys that were still probably, at best, 20 years old. And they refused to bow. And then the king finally says to throw them in the fiery furnace. And they do. And it was so hot that the guards that were taking those young Hebrew boys to this fiery furnace, they themselves die. And Nebuchadnezzar's out watching and looking down at this furnace, and all of a sudden he understands, he realizes that there were no longer three people in the furnace, but four. And they weren't burning, they're walking around. And we find out that that fourth one was Jesus. Jesus appears. And so those boys are taken out of the fiery furnace. And, and again, Nebuchadnezzar claims that there's this amazing God. And so chapter 3 ends on this high note. And then we get to chapter 4. Chapter 4. And so if you have your Bibles, open up. And, and chapter 4 is interesting to me. At first, it's, 
It's the longest chapter of the whole book of Daniel. It's 37 verses. This morning, what, we're, what I'm going to attempt to do is we're going to try and read some of these verses, stop a few times, fill in some blanks, and then we'll try and wrap it all together, okay? So what, before we start reading, let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for all the things you've done for us. Lord, I, I believe this book of Daniel is such, such a powerful, powerful book. Lord, I believe that even though much of it is a book of, of prophecy, there's still some very important information, stuff that we need to apply to our everyday lives. And, and this morning, I think this is one of those most important lessons, a lesson I believe God, that we all struggle with. We will struggle with probably up until we take that last breath here on earth. God, I'm so thankful that you give us scripture. You give us portions of the Bible where you allow us to see the good, the bad, the ugly. That you allow us to see how, in this case, our own pride destroys, but your glory restores. So this morning, God, as we dive into your word, Lord, I pray, I pray that we remain faithful to your word. God, I pray that you open up all of our eyes, our ears, and our minds. I pray you give us receptive hearts, all of us. God, I pray that you allow the layers of our lives to be peeled back and reveal to us what needs to be revealed. God, I pray that this morning that you um, give me your words. Help me to be a vessel of yours. Give me your heart. And give me your passion. Holy Spirit, I pray a great work is done today for your honor and for your glory alone. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Daniel chapter 4. As we get to Daniel chapter 4, what's interesting, one of the, the first things that I find very interesting is Daniel sets down the pen. He steps away as author of this book. And King Nebuchadnezzar himself is the one who picks up and writes Daniel chapter 4. A pagan king writing to a pagan empire. And the story gets quite amazing. So starting in verse number one of Daniel chapter four, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar to all the peoples, the nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. See, so, so this pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, is writing to not just his own little empire, the whole known world. He wants the, the word out. He wants the story out. He wants all ears to hear. Verse 2 says, It has seemed good for me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Verse 3 says, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. This is a huge statement that he makes at the very beginning, and we're going to see the magnitude of this heart and how it compares to what it was earlier. As we read this, 
Starting in verse 4, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Everything was great. The king's kicked back, relaxing. He's, he has conquered most of the known world. The Babylonian Empire was this amazing, amazing, amazing empire. They, they, they say the walls that surrounded this Babylonian empire were so wide that six chariots could ride side by side. It's amazing. Uh, so amazing that one of the seven wonders of the world, the, the hanging gardens of Babylon, were constructed under the watch of King Nebuchadnezzar. And we think, well, that's what, a garden. That's pretty impressive, right? I mean, for me it is, because I have no green thumb. But you know what's so amazing is no one's been able to replicate this. Uh, several years back, we, we remember Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein had attempted to rebuild Babylon. And he had put effort, he had put every resource that he had financially and everything into trying to build this hanging garden and failed. Back in this time, this is how great and powerful and amazing this, this King Nebuchadnezzar was. And so he's saying, I, I'm, I'm kicked back and laid back the fancies and visions or verse 5 says, and I saw a dream that made me afraid. Made him afraid. If you remember back in chapter 2, it, it, it used that term, uh, the, the dream caused him to be troubled. This changes a bit. In, in, in chapter 2, um, it began to keep him up at night, but, but it was a troubling dream. He just was confused by it. He knew it meant something, but he wasn't sure what it was. But this here, as he reads as he has this second dream, he's, he's scared. Again, if we understand who King Nebuchadnezzar was, that's a pretty big statement. To have this powerful king afraid over some dreams. Verse 6 says, So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. And then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in. And I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. So again, slightly different than chapter 2. He brings these guys in. He, he calls the crew back together. He says, guys, here's what I've been dreaming of. Like he's not playing games this time like he did in chapter 2. Like here's the dream, guys. What does it mean? And they can't figure it out. What's noticeable here is Somebody's missing. Verse 8 says, And at last Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I hold, told him the dream, saying. So Daniel wasn't called in initially. We don't know where Daniel was. And one of the things is we talked about Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As I finished up that message, I was walking down here, and Natalie was in the same spot. And she grabbed me, and she said, Pastor Chad, okay, where was Daniel? Right? I mean, like, those other three boys, like, they were there. They didn't, they didn't bow. Where was Daniel in chapter 3? Like, how come he was in the furnace? Now, now we don't have um, the answer to that. 
The scripture doesn't give us the answer. I think we can probably come up with one of three things would have happened. One, um, Daniel could have bowed to this false god, which I think is very improbable. I don't think it's, I would almost go to the point where I say it's almost impossible. As we read the whole book of Daniel, we read about that same man who purposed in his heart not to eat all that food. I, I highly doubt that he would be the kind of guy that would bow to this statue. So I think we can kind of cross that one up. The second one, going back to chapter 2, is um, the king didn't know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't, didn't bow. These same group of wise men that got in his ear, the same group that's in his ear once again over here that's brought in, they're the ones that reported it. So it's, it's possible that maybe they didn't report Daniel as being one of those guys that didn't bow. Again, I find that a little problematic because their biggest bone to pick was with Daniel. So they're going to pick on anybody. More than likely it would have been Daniel. The, the third and probably the most probable thing is Daniel had been promoted to a position almost like a prime minister. And, and the reality is Daniel probably wasn't even present when this whole thing took place. I mean, more than likely, if Daniel would have been there, the statue itself would have never been built. But in this moment of weakness, these other guys, this, uh, these other influencers got to Nebuchadnezzar. And so more than likely, Daniel wasn't there, just like we see here in Daniel chapter 4. He was probably out and about doing other things to the kings. And, and then finally, Daniel returns, and almost a sigh of relief that you see in verse 8 when it says, At last Daniel came in before me. And this is what I find, it's a small thing in Scripture, but I find pretty interesting. Notice King Nebuchadnezzar, who is writing chapter 4, refers to Daniel by his Hebrew name. He calls him Daniel. And then he has to go back. Look at that. It says, verse 8, it says, At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar. See, nobody else, if he would have just said Daniel, nobody else would have known who he was talking about. But he's using his Hebrew name. So he says, calls him Belteshazzar after the name of God and whom his spirit of the holy gods. For, and then it says, and I told him the dream. And here's the dream. Verse 9 says, or, or going into it, he goes, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. Verse 11, the tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens lived in its branches. And all flesh fed from it. So there's this mighty, there's this huge tree, right? The dream is this gigantic, massive tree. It's so big that, that all the animals find shade in this tree, and, and it produces enough food to, to feed all these animals. It's, it's so massive that it reaches up to heaven. This is massive tree. Verse 13 says, And I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. 
Verse 14 says, And he proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound and with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the field. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So there's this tree, the massive tree, big tree, all the fruit, all the shade, everything. First part of the dream sounds great. And all of a sudden there's this, this angel, this holy one that comes down and descends and declares the tree is chopped down. Only a stump is to remain. And as the tree is stomped down, the, the, the birds, the, the animals, they scatter. So what starts like a good dream ends pretty badly. And King Nebuchadnezzar says, Daniel, you, you know, like nothing can be hidden from you. you. You have this connection with your God. So tell me, help me, what does it mean? Verse 19. And again, we see the same thing we saw in verse 8. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream of the interpretation alarm you. So Daniel knows what the dream means, and he's, he's shaken. He knows it's not going to go well for Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know about you and your life. Maybe you've had a chance where, where you've either seen it in maybe one of your children, maybe it's a friend, a relative, brother, sister, a parent, or something. And you can see that, that they begin to go on this destructive path. And, and, and there's that time where, where you need to have a real frank, like, hard conversation. And those are never comfortable, are they? Some, sometimes we, we come up with a list of excuses why not to have that conversation, why to avoid the circumstance, why to avoid the situation, why to avoid the person. And Daniel here, he has to have a very hard conversation. One of the things I respect the most about Daniel is rather than sugarcoat it, rather than run from it, rather than to try and find a positive spin, he humbly and prayerfully speaks the truth. And so he goes to King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, he says, My Lord, May the dream be of those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, I, I wish, I wish this dream was about your enemies. All those that, that hate you. Like I wish, I wish this was about them. 
the tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Verse 21 says, Whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. Verse 22 says, It is you, O king. Like this tree, this, this amazing, huge, massive tree, that's you, King Nebuchadnezzar. The, the gold head of the statue, that's you again. Who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, your dominion to the ends of the earth. Verse 23 says, And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. And Dan says, This is what it means, king. This is the interpretation. It is the decree of the Most High. This is the, the decree of God. Which has come upon my Lord the King, that you, shall, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Verse 26 says, And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you. From the time that you know that the heaven rules, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness, your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. And so Daniel says, King, like as great and as mighty as you are, if you don't change your ways, the tree will be chopped down and, and you are going to be driven away from, from man, from the people. Uh, you're going to turn into almost like a beast. Like your food, you'll eat like an ox. You will act, you will act like a beast. And so he's like, so Nebuchadnezzar, just stop. Ch change your ways, go back and, and be this good king. Do what's right. Verse 28 says, And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, and at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And so a year passes, like a year since Daniel gives this dream. Nebuchadnezzar had a year to get his life right. I mean, so often when we get in those valleys of life, we can turn to God and we can begin to complain to God about how can you let such bad things happen? 
Why does it have to be so difficult, so hard? How often in our lives can we look back and see where we've been on a destructive path and God has given us time to straighten it out, but in our own foolishness, in our own pride, we just keep trucking away. And so Nebuchadnezzar is given a year, and finally he's, he's walking around on the porch, and he starts to gaze over his empire. And again, this pride in, in verse, that verse 30, think that statement he makes, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. Verse 31 says, And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling place shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Verse 33 says, And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair was, grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. And so this dream's fulfilled. As soon as he completes those as he's uttering those last words, as he's bragging about how, how great of a king and how great of an empire that he built like that, he's taken away. And that time, that, that period that says a, of seven-year period, or some of your versions may say seasons, most commentators agree that it would be for seven years. For seven years, this great, mighty, powerful king would lose all sanity. He, he would act like a beast. There, I mean, it describes that, that, that his hair grew like feathers, like his claws, his nails on his, on his hands and his feet like claws. He, he ate grass and he, he, would, he would walk or crawl like a beast for seven years. Verse 34 says, And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Verse 35 says, or in verse 34, it says, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and I still, and still more greatness was added to me. Verse 37, the last verse of the chapter, the last verse of King Nebuchadnezzar's testimony says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol 
and honor the King of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. If you have a pen, I would encourage you to underline this last portion. portion. It says, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. As we read this amazing testimony of this powerful king, a king who had everything at his disposal, could do anything he wanted, we begin to see how this pride began to creep in. And the result of that pride was destruction. As we go through Scripture, We'll, we'll do this quickly, but I, I think it's very, very important for us to look at this. If you, you go back a few pages into the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs 6, um, verse 16 through 19. Listen to these, these very strong words. So Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says, There are six things that the Lord hates. Okay, hates. It's a strong word, isn't it? It's not like a dislike. It's like a, it, it might annoy me a little bit. No, these are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are the abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, the hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who discords, sows discord among brothers. You go a few pages later on into Proverbs 16. 16 verse 5. He says this, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Later on in that same chapter, verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 26, verse 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is no hope for a fool. There's more hope for a fool than for him. And then lastly, Proverbs 29, verse 23 says, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Pride's one of those things that we read all throughout the book of Proverbs. And we can go into the New Testament. You can look in Philippians. You can look in James. God has very little patience for pride. In fact, when we start to question, what's the big deal with pride? Why is pride such a big thing? Why, why, is it, why does God hate it so much? If you go into um, Isaiah chapter 14, I believe it's 13 through 14, 
there's this description of Satan. And we find out the reason Satan fell, the reason Satan was this great, amazing angel that God had created. He was part of God's kingdom, got a part of God's army. But it was pride that caused Satan to fall. And so often what happens in our own lives is we allow pride to get in there. And we begin to think we've accomplished something because of our hard work or because of some skill that I have. And very easily, we can begin to pat our own backs. And we forget that it was God. It was God who gave us the talents. It was God who gave us the abilities. It was God who gave us the opportunities. It was God. And it's always about God's glory. So so when we think about this idea, man's pride destroys. But what's so amazing is that God's glory restores. Right? This account of Nebuchadnezzar, he was in this beast-like manner. He was was running around eating grass until he looked to heaven. Until he rose his head and looked to heaven and acknowledged God and his glory. Think, think about this in, in all throughout the scripture. Moses. You guys remember the story of Moses, right? Moses, we talked about Jochebed for Mother's Day. Moses' birth mom. Right? Moses grows up. Um, he's, he's heir to Pharaoh. He has, again, everything to his disposal. Greatness. And then he realizes that he's really not Egyptian. He ought to be one of these slaves. And in his manner, his hot spirit, his, his anger, he ends up killing one of these guards, and he, he takes off, and he runs away. And he becomes a shepherd, works for his father-in-law. Gets married, works for his father-in-law as a shepherd. He's just out there watching sheep, doing nothing of great significance until God his glory is revealed in the form of this burning bush. Right? And then as God's glory is revealed, when Moses takes his, his shoes off and he stands there and he sees this burning bush, the great I am, then Moses is restored. And he would go on and he would, he would lead the children of Israel. What about David? arguably one of our most favorite characters in all the Bible. We remember the stories of young David and David and Goliath. But, but as much as we remember David and Goliath, we also are reminded of David and Bathsheba. We have to realize that the reason that David fell and sinned goes back to pride. David should have been out in the battlefield. He should have been out there leading the men, but, but pride had grabbed a hold of David's heart. And so rather than going and doing what he ought to be doing, he stayed back home. And he was walking on the balcony, looking over his great kingdom, everything that he was controlling and ruling. And because of the pride in his heart, he began to sin. One of the things I love about God is 
Early in David's life, he was called a man after God's own heart before the Bathsheba debacle. But we read also later after his sin with Bathsheba, he once again is called a man after God's own heart. That pride, I challenge you, go read Psalm 51 today. Psalm 51 is a psalm that David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba. And he begs God. He says, God, create in me a clean heart, O God, and restore unto me the joy of your salvation. That's not pride. We did a study on Jonah. You guys remember when Jonah was called by God to go to Nineveh to, to share the good news with Nineveh. At that time, again, the Assyrian Empire, this huge, massive empire, a barbaric people, but God had called Jonah to go. And he wouldn't go. He, he ran from God, and, and he, he tried to get as far away from Nineveh as possible. We have the story where this giant fish swallows him, spits him up, and then he goes to Nineveh. And when he finally gets his heart right with God, when he finally sees God's glory, he's restored. And he goes to Nineveh and he preaches in the largest revival in history. Upwards of 300,000 people come to know God. This morning, if I could leave us with anything, I would encourage us to spend a few moments inspecting our hearts. Is there a portion of our lives that we have allowed pride to creep in? As your pastor, you know, there, there's times when it can be very easy after a Sunday morning when, when some of you come up, pat me on the shoulder, say, man, it was a great message today. It was so awesome. You're so... The, there are times when that can begin to fester and your head begins to get a little bit bigger than it ought to get. You lose focus. Now, don't come afterwards and say, man, that sermon was awful. <laughs> you, you stink. But when we take our eyes off of God, we begin to focus them on ourselves. The outcome will always be destruction. Because God will not allow us to rob his glory. So rather than focus on us, I want to encourage all of us to shift our thoughts, our energies, our attention back to him. To be mindful of who God is and what he has done. And even though we might be in a valley, even though things may be difficult, he is in control. He is sovereign. And we've seen it chapter after chapter in the book of Daniel. We'll continue to see it. I mean, one of the arguably the most, the most well-known chapter of Daniel is still to come. Daniel chapter 6, we see Daniel in the lion's den. Again, we see this all throughout Scripture. God is sovereign. He's in control. So let's get off our self-destructive ways.
and grab a hold of him and allow him to do something amazing in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you, God, for all the things you've done for us. Lord, I thank you for this passage of Scripture. I thank you for this king, a pagan king and a pagan empire who went through an embarrassing time in life, yet took the time to write it down and not just write it down, but make sure everyone in the known world heard. Heard what, caused, what happened as a result of the pride in his own life. That, that heard that his own pride and his himself brought on destruction. But the story did not end with Nebuchadnezzar in a field acting like a beast. The story took a dramatic turn when he lifted his head to heaven and acknowledged your glory and acknowledged how great you were. And you restored him. This morning, God, I pray in the next few moments that you allow each of us to inspect our own lives. Lord, show us where there's pride. And give us the strength and the courage to give that pride to you, to acknowledge you, to turn to you and give you all the glory so we can be restored to an amazing life of serving you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.